They have to set forth the factual and contractual basis for the rejection, and they have to have it certified in good faith. I always think that's the funniest part. The last sentence, I, I certify this email was sent in good faith. Yeah, you know, it's just that added. The, <laughs> you have to say it. Everyone's like, yeah, it's that added kind of formality. Hmm. I once sent such an email and I got a response back to the effect of, uh, go screw yourself. I certify <laughs> this was said in good faith. You know? <laughs> <laughs> This is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, episode 78 with your hosts, Ray Herto, RH Investment Group. Dan Rubin, RH Investment Group. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And joining us today, we have... Brad Croft of Roberto Israel and Weiner. We're a, a law firm in Boston. I've uh, been around for about 50 years. We have uh, about 30 lawyers and we specialize in construction, uh, litigation. We have banking practice. We have a corporate pr practice, uh, but my area specialty is litigation and commercial construction. Nice. That's awesome. That's excellent. Unless, so, unless so, you're involved in litigation currently and we feel your pain. <laughs> so maybe just a little overview of what that- Well, what happened actually... at HRV Homes? You guys just threw me for a loop. Oh, we're done. We're gone. Oh, yeah. yeah. We rebranded. You didn't get our new email addresses and oh, my I mean, constant out of office replies? I, I still did a double take with the uh, introduction 80 episodes. I, I actually did too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, name change. It was time. Time to get a little more grown up. HRV Homes is now RH Investment Group. I will expect me to continue to email you and your old email address for the next 12 months. <laughs> I have no doubts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just like today's invite. <laughs> back to RIW. Yes, yes. Right, let's Brad. get back so to I, it. I cut Dan off. He was asking a good yeah, question. Yeah, no. So just in general, what what can you define a little bit more of, of sure. your specialty? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I represent uh, generally commercial contractors and developers. We soup to nuts help out with uh, land acquisition all the way through to, you know, to the extent that there are ever any disputes or problems on a project. We do contracts, commercial construction contracts, uh, design contracts, all sorts, uh, you know, and types. Overall, my practice is focused in litigation. So uh, that typically means disputes in a very general sense. But uh, we really try to avoid disputes and help clients navigate their way around issues. So it's not your typical necessarily, you know, conventional lawsuit where one party is suing the other. It could be uh, just problems as they arise on projects. You know, gotcha. How do you solve those problems? How often do these types of things occur while one party is suing another? Is it pretty common in the industry or... Is it like, does it need of, to be something like egregious, right? One out of 10. No, you know, it depends. I mean, there's certain parties out there that have a very itchy litigation trigger finger, right? So any type of issue, they will call their lawyer. And if their lawyer is the sort that has the appetite to run into a courtroom, it'll happen. Typically, the more sophisticated the, the, the client and, and the parties, the more money that's at stake, oftentimes they will try to resort to figuring out problems before just kind of going into their respective corners and, and bashing each other over the head. In fact, most of the, the contracts that we recommend have provisions that, that expressly require parties to take that approach. So more conciliatory, trying to figure things out before, you know, getting the, the, the lawyers involved and the, the you know, legal fees and everything adding into the problem instead of trying to solve it. Does that mean, are you implying mandatory mediation or arbitration sort of clauses? Yeah, you typically exactly. have that option, right? Like a standard construction contract gives you two checkboxes. You will immediately go to arbitration or mediation. 
Do you feel that there's an advantage to picking one or the other? Is there uh, things that you think about before checking either box? Yeah, so, so arbitration and mediation, I think they're often conflated. A mediation is by no way an adjudication. So mediation is just a formal settlement conference. It's a way for parties with the help of a neutral to state their respective positions and then try to solve the problem, right? Through a more formal setting. So it could be in a lawyer's office where they meet jointly in the morning, they kind of give their positions and then they separate. The mediator goes room to room and tries to figure things out and, and bring the parties together. Arbitration is litigation in a sense, meaning it is a, a proceeding that will result in a judgment or a decision being made. And that decision will be enforceable. To answer your question, I think, was try to get parties to the table early in a dispute. The idea there is, uh, without giving up too much, uh, to try to put their resources into solving the problem before they have to go through either arbitration or litigation. Provisions in a contract can call for one or the other. So it's either arbitration or litigation, but in all cases, they can still have mediation. And who, who's an arbiter just in general? I mean, are they sort of retired former judges or what's kind of the background of that person? And Yep, they can be. So yeah. an arbitrator can be a judge. It could be an, um, a retired judge. More times than not, especially with construction disputes, you're dealing with construction lawyers who kind of took on that that role. Nice. Yeah. Just not a, not a degree you hear about as arbiter in yeah. school. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's a pretty profitable one. I mean, the, the good ones are in very high demand Wow. and they go all over the place. And I mean, there are arbitrations that go on for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. I mean, it's a, the higher the stakes, you typically will have a panel. So you'll have three arbitrators. But one of the big things with arbitration that I think people look past when they're deciding whether they should go through arbitration or litigation Litigation, other than your attorney's fees, which can be sub substantial, is free, right? You're not paying the judge. Well, you shouldn't be paying the judge. <laughs> uh, with arbitration, it's different. Those arbitrators, are they have billable hourly rates. And if there are three of them, then you're not only paying your attorney's fees, you're paying the arbitrator. And if it's administered through like the American Arbitration Association, you're paying an additional fee. So those costs can, can you know, rise very, very rapidly. Have you, have you seen the amount of people that are going through litigation go up over the last X amount of years? I feel that we're, we've become a very Sue happy litigious, yeah, litigious kind of group. Yeah. Again, I think, I think oftentimes parties, you know, they like to have the idea that they have their lawyer, they have their hired gun. And if necessary, you know, they can do battle. I will tell you the the contract, there are contractors out there that we all know of who you never hear getting involved in litigation, in court, even in high profile arbitrations. And I think there's a reason for that. It, you know, it's not always the right solution, even though it might be available and it might be a feel good solution. You have a problem, there's emotions involved, there's money involved, and there's this right and wrong kind of equation that pops in everyone's head. I think some of the smarter developers and contractors over the years have realized that in fact, that right and wrong is less important than their bottom line. Yeah. Can also be very gray and uh, ambiguous. And I guess that's where a good attorney comes in because I think the, one of the best ways to avoid litigation, arbitration, et cetera, is by setting clear expectations up front. And that comes vis-a-vis -a, -vis a, a clear right. contract. 
Yeah, good contracts, good clauses. So, but they can never predict for everything. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there there definitely are contracts forms that are better than others. But I think you're right. I think it is kind of setting the expectations of the parties to a contract or a project right out of the gates. And there's no better way or clearer way to do that than in the contract. What are some of the low-hanging fruit items or clauses in a contract that you think everybody should have? Well, it depends on who, who everybody is. So if everybody is every developer or owner or every contractor or every subcontractor, even suppliers have different priorities. I think in, in the case of, I guess, in this, this discussion, developers. Yep. yep. So I think, you know, from a developer standpoint, what a developer cares most about are typically the cost of the project and the schedule of the project and obviously the quality of the final product. Mm -hmm. And when you're dealing with cost and you're dealing with schedule, you're dealing with like liquidated damages or delay claims. So I think those provisions in a contract, the first one that I look at is the waiver of consequential damages provision. And, and what that it is, I'm sure all, you know, you've seen this before, but there's certain types of damages in a contract that are available. So if they're foreseeable damages, that if one party breaches, the other party should be entitled to collect. There are other types of damages called consequential damages, which are not necessarily available just because there has been a breach. And so your typical off-the-shelf AIA contract will have a mutual waiver of consequential damages. What that means is, for example, any costs or delay damages that you may have. What's an example of that? So um, your, your finance charges, or lost profits, or let's take a tenant um, you know, you're in space A and you've paid a contractor to finish your space B. And if you, if it's not done on time, you're going to have to pay some, you know, penalty clauses with your existing space. So that rent, that holdover rent that you're going to have to pay, or you have a cannabis manufacturing facility and you have a certain amount of profit that you're expecting to make one, you know, on day one, mm -hmm. when that opens and your plants have grown and you're able to do your thing the profits that you won't be able to make because the project has been delayed. So they often waive those types of damages. That's right. That's right. Okay. And option B would be liquidated damages where you specify. Another option for, for damages. But before we get to liquidated mm -hmm. damages, the important thing to remember is on those consequential damages, if you haven't fully considered that, an owner, you know, what are the consequential damages that an owner would be waiving? They're significant, right? They're those lost profits. They're the, the delay damages. But from a contractor standpoint, what are the contractor's consequential damages? What is it giving up? Maybe mobilizing on another project, but I mean, they're not as clear. So a, a, a contractor has a lot more to lose to be on the hook for the potential consequential damages of an owner than an owner does to be on the hook for the contractor's potential consequential damages. So that's why when I'm representing an owner, that's something that I absolutely want to strike. If I do, however, the contractor is going to say, well, we don't build into our margins enough you know, money to be able to pay for that potential, that risk. Mm -hmm. So the in-between, the, the kind of place that parties naturally then go to is a liquidated damages provision. And, Which, and that would be yeah. more of like a per diem type delay, maybe based on the schedule when within certain parameters, right? So, I mean, obviously you can't build when it's a blizzard, right? So there's probably some carve outs, but- but essentially, is that what you're, you're referring to? That's right. Yeah, it's a per diem damages, mm -hmm. uh, typically. In Massachusetts, it can't be a penalty. 
So there, there, you can't have a, a punitive liquidated damages provision. You have to have damages that are not readily ascertainable. So it's, hey, we don't really know what this is going to cost. So we're going to just agree to a number that you can live with and that we can live with. And really the idea is that it's going to be an incentive for the contractor to keep up with schedule. Often it's a negotiating point at the end of the project. Is it usually one lump sum number or could it be a daily penalty or does it not, does, can it be either or? It can be either or. It's typically a, day, a daily penalty, a per diem. There sometimes are negotiated caps to say up to a certain amount. I've seen that, but they're, they're fairly common uh, in, in contracts, especially in, in the commercial world. Yeah, we, we put up in ours. We'll usually have them ta- taper <laughs> up. There might be a grace period, a certain amount per day. And as time goes on, that, that penalty becomes, maybe I shouldn't use the word penalty, that cost <laughs> becomes more and more. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Kind of like a curve. Yeah. Uh-huh. And on the flip side, do you, do you see bonuses given to contractors if they beat certain milestones? So I, I hear them uh, requested. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't necessarily view one as related to the other. Okay. Because, you know, finishing early for a contractor has a built-in benefit to the contractor already. Mm-hmm. And, and why an owner should be the one to pay for that. That said... You know, as an owner, if you want that project finished early and you're willing to pay for it and it means some money to you, then sure, you know, why not consider it? Makes sense. Got to go somewhere in between the savings of whatever your holding costs are versus just paying for it and getting that extra month. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting uh, relationship with like savings on a contingency. So it's contingency on a cost plus project where you have a, a GMP. And you have a, a built-in contingency that the contractor can use to cover some estimate gaps. I hear this all the time where the contractor says, well, if we don't use all the contingency, we should be entitled to keep some of it. <laughs> the owner's like, well, that's my money. So why exactly should I be encouraging you not to spend my money that you shouldn't be spending or didn't need to spend anyway? There's a reason why right. it's called contingency. Yes. And, right. Yeah. And it creates some interesting incentives. Right. How do you create contingencies, essentially? Yeah. A feature of the law in Massachusetts, which I think is interesting, it's very helpful for an owner and not that many people know about, is uh, the notion of duty to defend. And insurance is such an important part of what we do. Can you talk a little bit about what duty to defend means and uh, how that comes into play? Sure. Yeah. You had asked before about as uh, representing an owner, what contract provisions, what's the low-hanging fruit? One of the most important provisions, you know, really are are the insurance provisions. And any insurance contract from an owner's perspective is going to have property insurance. It's going to have liability insurance. The contractors and the subcontractors are all going to have their own liability insurance. So there are two separate kinds. There's what's called first party property policy, which is like your homeowner's policy. If there's a loss that happens, if that loss is covered, the insurance company should come in and pay for it. The other kind is liability policy, and that's third party, which, which presupposes that a third party has made a claim based upon some action, some conduct or negligence by one of the parties to the contract. So in that instance, if somebody gets sued, so someone sues you as the owner because your contractor was negligent. So somebody walks onto the job site, gets injured right? They sue you and they sue the contractor. Well, the contractor's third-party liability insurance should pick up 
the cost of defending that claim. Whether they pick up the actual judgment and indemnify, you know, the, the actual indemnity of the insurance contract, that's a different question. But the duty to defend is broader than the duty to indemnify. By their logic, they may have a liability on their hands, they being an insurance company, and it's in their own interest to bring in an attorney and start uh, presenting a defense, whether or not they ultimately are responsible for that judgment, award, what have you. That's yeah. correct understanding. I mean, th- yes, that is. And, and, and I think what people sometimes forget is an insurance company, you've all heard of like reservation of rights letters, right? So you make your notice of claim, they send a letter saying, well, we don't know whether or not we're going to indemnify you from this claim. We're going to reserve our rights on that, but we do need to defend you. In Massachusetts, what that should signal to the coverage, to the, the policyholder, is that you get to choose your own lawyer and the insurance company has to pay for it. So the insurance company does not get to choose counsel under a reservation of rights. That, that could be a significant issue mm-hmm. and a significant benefit for a party in that situation. And is that something that's picked out during your insurance shopping, if you will? Not really. It's I kind mean, of it's, standard. Yeah. Duty yeah. to defend is in every insurance contract, every third-party insurance And contract. you mentioned in that scenario that the contractor's policy, the third-party policy picks in, but what about the actual owner if it's not the contractor? Are they also going to be part of that claim or defense? Yes. So, so if you have a, typically you would have your own liability policy, but that liability policy would in all likelihood be triggered based upon your conduct, right? Got this it. is something that is being triggered by a party that contractor, for example. So as an owner, you should be an additional insured on the contractor's policy so that you have rights. What's the typical size project that you're kind of writing contracts for or involved in? Sure. From a dispute perspective, I would say between five and 50 million. I mean, it depends. Again, there there are incredibly profitable projects Mm -hmm. with the margins that you guys know about Mm -hmm. that are not necessarily big ticket overall. And then there are projects that are just large commercial, you know, ground up buildings and we've been involved in projects up, you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Are the AIA contracts kind of standard? Is that the de facto where everybody starts and then yep. kind of go from there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing this for 26 years and they have always been and remain kind of the, the gold standard. That's not to say they're the best out there. I mean, the AGC has good documents. There are other types of documents people use in favor but I think it's that comfort level. I mean, the whole idea of a contract is your relationship and you're forming a relationship and it has to be built on a trust, a mutual trust. And when you're using the same templated document, there is that built-in trust. Where it gets dangerous for, for folks is when they just assume because it's the AIA contract, ah, it's the AIA contract, here, mm-hmm. sign it, this is it. And I think what a lot of unsophisticated developers don't realize is that you should have a lawyer or some other professional who can dive into that contract and, you know, make it more favorable and protect issues that you may not, you know, that the boilerplate may not address. So that was kind of my, my follow-up question. So if I'm a smaller developer that isn't doing projects of that size, do you think, do you, would you say start with the AIA contracts and maybe have your attorney kind of look, look them over and make recommendations based on 
what you're working on and what types of projects you're doing and who you're hiring? Is that kind of what your recommendation would be for yeah, smaller developers? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we have, and, and, you know, when, when I was talking about disputes, the range of, of cases that you get into that full board dispute mode are typically higher dollars, but we do contracts for projects, $250,000 contracts. I mean, again, you, you, it's not a one size fits all. So um, even the AIA family of contracts has different forms for different size projects, more sophisticated, less sophisticated. You know, there's none that are like back of the napkin kind of that I do <laughs> see from time to time. But yeah, no, what, what I recommend is that, you know, every developer have at least, you know, taken a deep dive once to figure out what is the, what's the universe? I mean, I, I remember like when I had to study for the bar exam, it's kind of a sidetrack. When I studied for the bar exam, it was an overwhelming amount of material. And the kind of anxiety about it is like, you didn't know how big the universe was. You, you knew like there was going to be a dog bite question <laughs> on it. And then there's going to be like rule against perpetuities, right? Once you go through it, you kind of understand, all right, now I see where all this fits in. That's the same thing with a contract. I mean, to be able to go through an AIA contract and spend the time and frankly, a couple bucks at the outset and understand, okay, here's all of the, the, the kind of the menu. And then you pick and choose what it is that's really important to your risk profile. And by the way, before signing a contract, you need to know, and a lot of people don't, like, what is your tolerance for risk? And certain developers and contractors, you know, they don't really think through that. They just say, okay, we have a project, let's get a contract and let's, let's, let's build. Right. Yeah. I mean, clearly, you know, the contracts with developers and, and GCs or subs is far different than a homeowner because, you, you know, homeowner contracts are just whatever they write up and you don't really get to call the shots. But as a developer, I think that's where you kind of have that leg up and that advantage where you can say, this is the contract we're going to use. And if you would like the business, I mean, maybe now is not a great time since there's business everywhere, but in theory, you know, if you want to work with us, here's what we do. But to your point, having the same set of contracts and that familiarity is, is, is really helpful. Yeah. It's, it's really helpful for an owner to have not only its contract form with a contractor, but it suggested subcontracts that it wants to see its contractor use downstream with its subs. I see. Hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can really dictate. And again, when I say dictate, or when I say you use your form, I don't mean that in like a, um, a bullying kind of take it or leave it. We're the big guy, everything's flowing downhill. So you got to take it. It's much more, I mean, I, I encourage all of my clients to be fair in their contracting. Mm -hmm. Again, it is that establishment of trust at the beginning of a relationship. And if you put a contract and people do this all the time, they put contracts in front of you and you're like, I would never sign that contract. I mean, it's like giving up your firstborn. I mean, just ridiculous. So that's why I think it does makes you look good. If you've taken the time, you've thought through these things and the product that you're actually giving them to consider is something that you, in fact, would sign if you were them. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Just want to take a quick break and thank our sponsor, First Boston Capital Partners. Dave Grossman, one of the principals there, he is awesome to work with. If you need financing, quick acquisitions, or looking to do something uh, debt and equity structured, reach out to us. We can make an introduction. Be happy to do that for you. And now back to the episode. One area that I'm always very strict on is that I like to be the one to present the contract. So either side can give the first draft. I much prefer to be the one offering it. And then the second piece is just 
there's all kinds of proposals. You might get a proposal from a sub or a contractor that might be on their terms. It might say a certain thing. You might negotiate for four weeks and then come to a contract at the end, a real agreement. And inevitably at some point in the job, they say, no, no, Mark, I sent you that, uh, that, that proposal in September. And so my con any good contract will always say, this is the contract, this is the agreement, and there is no other. All priors are overwritten. Yes. And I mean, obviously, you know, especially if it's a less sophisticated sub, you know, you send them a 12-page document, their heads will explode. So I think that's the other reason why a lot of people try and keep it simple, right? But we have a solution to that as well. <laughs> oh, yeah? What is that? So um, Don't work with them? <laughs> no, no, no. To the contrary. So what we've done is um, we have recommended that our general contractor clients have a, a master agreement, okay, that sets forth all of those, like, all the terms and conditions. And then for each project, they do like a project-specific addendum. That's a maybe a one or two pager, mm -hmm. kind of anything different on this project, any unique insurance requirements, if there's liquidated damages on this project, those sorts of things. And we just put it in that. Nice. So, and it refers back and incorporates by reference. And, you know, so far there's not a case that says that somehow is, you know, is, is improper. So read the master one and just get familiar with that. No, that's never really going to change unless some crazy, you know, industry changing. We recommend that, that it change once a year. Oh, so basically year. on the anniversary, you know, to make sure, and again, it's a good time to make sure you have current insurance certificates mm -hmm. to make sure that um, if there are any problematic subs that you can, you know, separate from things of that nature. But I think, you know, going back to your question about what is in fact the, when, when I get calls from clients on contracts, there's certain of my clients that will call me or send every single contract will come to us. And sometimes they'll say, hey, just do a light, a light read and we'll just do a bullet point. Hey, here are the issues, right? There's certain contracts that come our way that it's ground up. I mean, it's the, the difference between like what you guys mm -hmm. deal with. If somebody comes in and says, hey, can you just do a refresh mm -hmm. on this versus a ground up, you know, new foundation. So it really is all shapes and sizes. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Um, I was going to say uh, another feature, another buzzword perhaps that comes up a lot is um, standard of care. So we talk about standard of care with architects, with contractors, even subcontractors. And uh, it's this notion that act with common sense. You know, you do have an obligation, even if it isn't exactly spelled out, there is some responsibility given your professional a role in this project. And that's, I'm sure something that you get calls about. I do. Yeah. I think the genesis of those calls is typically the issue of design versus construction, right? So as an owner, you're hiring a design, well, unless you're hiring a design builder, you're typically hiring an architect and then you're separately going to hire a contractor, right? That standard of care can come up when a, for example, a contractor is being accused of doing something that maybe a reasonable contractor in that instance would have known better and shouldn't have done. So we have that example of the contractor who following the set plans and specs builds a staircase that goes up to a brick wall, mm -hmm. right? And you say, well, it was a perfectly built staircase. You know, it's code compliant. It's beautiful. There's a handrail. <laughs> right. But the, you know, the problem no is, landing. <laughs> should that contractor have said, hey, there's an issue here. And one of the things we'll do is, you know, we will bake into the construction contract a provision that says, hey, if there are any you know, readily ascertainable issues that upon your review of the plans and specs, you notice, you need to let us know as the owner. Now, we also will say, again, going back to my comment about being fair 
and even-handed. We'll say in, in your review of the plans and specs, you're doing so as a contractor, not as a design professional. Mm -hmm. We get that. But to the extent that a reasonable contractor should have called that out, you know, we'd like to know. And we don't want to start incurring costs to fix issues that really should have been prevented altogether. Two roads that meet and they're 300 feet apart, that kind of, that kind of issue. There's a doctrine, not to get too uh, kind of pedantic and like esoteric into yeah. the law, but there's this, this thing called the Spearin Doctrine, which is, uh, it goes back to, I think, the early 1900s. And there was a case where the contractor was basically being accused and, and there was a claim in the contractor for not having figured out certain design aspects. And the Spearin Doctrine says that a contractor is not required nor responsible to deal with or or suffer the, the costs incurred by deficient design. Mm. And that's still alive. So that, that kind of goes right mm -hmm. to that standard of care. So really you need to have good architect and civil and surveying and all that as well. Because to, to a degree, not that anybody's looking to create that conflict, but if it does arise, then they can just say, well, we, we missed it. Honest mistake. Yeah. And honest mistakes happen. The problem with honest mistakes is they cost money. And we see it a lot with like MAB concerns, handicap accessibility issues. The bathroom wasn't quite big enough. You still built it. That's the size of the bathroom your architect drew. Maybe you should know that you need to turn radius of this in front of the shower, but I don't know. So actually kind of piggybacking on that, can we talk about change orders? For sure. Minutes? So I think we're all guilty of it, obviously. Like, you know, you're, you're running a hundred miles an hour on a project and you just want to keep going, 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 right? So you, you have something that changes and you agree to a price and what should the actual process be from a change order standpoint? What specific change order provision should be in a, in a contract? And what should the actual order of operations be? Because obviously you agree on site with the, with the general contractor or the subcontractor to the change order, but like what should you actually have in writing with them? Great question. In fact, that question I wish people would <laughs> ask as they're going through the, the contract process, because I wouldn't say most, but a, a, a great number of the disputes I've litigated through the years have dealt with change orders. So a contract should spell out precisely what constitutes a change order. It should have specifics in there. Like, for example, they need to be in writing. They are not official. Any work done on a change order that hasn't been subject to a written instrument signed or approved by the owner or architect of record is non-compensable, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are all of these provisions and you can make them as specific as you need to. But I think what you're saying too is in the real life kind of timeline of a project, things come up in the morning and then by the afternoon, you have a different direction you want to follow. Yeah. So what do you do? The more you can document things, the better. And I would ring the cost bell as often and as loudly as possible. And people tend to shy away from that. They really shouldn't. If they confronted it to say, okay, this is a change, here's what it's going to cost you. And an owner in that instance should be able to say, okay, well, can you break that down for me? Show me where those costs are. And they are what they are. I mean, I hate to you know, so, be so trite, but they really, it, you know, if it got to that point in a relationship, and if there is that trust there, the owner's not going to feel like it's being taken advantage of, and the contractor's not going to feel like it's being taken advantage of. Far too often, though, Changes get ordered in the field, they get done, and then you get that sticker shock, right, after the fact, because no one confronted the elephant in the room, which is how much is this going to cost? Right. Or a lot of the time, what will happen is you're, you make that decision, 
and they they actually go ahead and make the change and you say all right well what what's this going to cost and they're like oh i'll figure it out and let you know that's right you yeah. hear that a lot yeah. too oh yeah or you're not speaking to the key decision maker of that construction group right you're talking to one of the workers and you're trying to sort something out maybe the boss is on another job so they just do it and maybe that's to the detriment of the construction company but at the same time they're keeping the job moving forward so maybe it's not worth it i guess it depends on the scope it does they're also with like the prompt payment act for sure. example uh that set forth a very specific regime that has to be followed for change orders in order to constitute and approve or reject and so if those aren't followed on those projects, they're deemed approved. So, you know, kind of the law took a, 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 a paternalistic kind of approach here and, and baked into Massachusetts law that on certain projects, if a change order is not rejected within, say, 30 days, then it's deemed approved as a matter of law. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about the Prompt Pay Act. So this applies on all Massachusetts contracts of a certain size, $2 million, I believe. And it three three, and it spells out the exact things as an owner because this is mostly our audience uh, that you would need to do in order to re reject a change order. Do you want to go into the implications of that and some of those things? Sure, sure. Construction is is um, it's an interesting payment relationship, right? Uh, you know, picture going into a retail store and you want to buy something. You bring it up to the counter and you don't get to take it home until you pay for it, right? Construction is the exact opposite. You are providing services, you're providing materials, then you bill for it, and then you get paid. So there's this element of trust that when you provide materials, you are then going to get paid for it. What has happened over time is owners have, uh, some owners, not all. <laughs> Thank um, you for that distinction. <laughs> especially none of you yes. <laughs> or any of my clients um, have, have been slow to pay sometimes. And uh, what happens is, they don't give and they didn't give specific reasons why they weren't paying. So what the law did in 2010 is uh, the legislature in Massachusetts is they enacted a law to say that, um, in fact, on projects of $3 million or more, excluding residential projects of four dwellings or less, hmm. there must be a, uh, a specific in writing certified in good faith reason for rejection. And so, for example, the typical off the shelf would be 15 days. So from the, from the day that a subcontractor provides a payment application to an owner, an owner has 15 days within which they must review and either approve or specifically reject. If they are going to specifically reject, they have to do so in writing. They have to set forth the factual and contractual basis for the rejection, and they have to have it certified in good faith. I always think that's the funniest part. The last sentence, I, I certify this email was sent in good faith. Yeah. You know, it's just that added. The, <laughs> you have to say it. Everyone's like, yeah, it's that added kind of formality. Because again, think about the history here where subcontractors, because this goes down downstream mm -hmm. too. general contractors owe the same responsibility to subcontractors. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's giving them the peace of mind to know that in fact, you did look at this and you don't have to be right in your rejection. You just have to be honest and you have to say, here are the reasons I think you are not due payment for the work that you've done. And if you miss that for any reason, the law says you have to pay it. You can then come back around after, presumably, as long as you paid it and try to get the money back by saying, hey, you know, 
the, the tile that you build us for mm -hmm. was actually cracked and we didn't reject it in writing saying that the tile was cracked, therefore we're not paying. Mm -hmm. So here's your money for the cracked tile. Mm -hmm. But by the way, here's their claim, your claim that you have to repay us that money. Yeah, I've seen that. Interesting. Mm. I once sent such an email and I got a response back to the effect of, uh, go screw yourself. I certify <laughs> this was said in good faith. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, it is, it is a, a very interesting point of law. Mm -hmm. It is uh, in the 11 years since the law passed, um, there has only been, I believe, one case in the Massachusetts state courts dealing with, with it and enforcing it. Um, and it's currently up on appeal. Something that you've been involved with. Correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah. In, indeed. Huh. Kind of on that concept of payments, how important, how important is a payment schedule as sort of an addendum to the contracts unless they're already sort of built in there? And how, how often do you see like large sums of money being outlaid before any work is done? Again, to your point, Brad, is the the trust factor, right? So if it's someone that you've worked with a bunch of times, they know that you'll pay. But if it's somebody new, especially if you're moving into larger projects and maybe you're hiring a different GC, how does that usually play out, do you see? So uh, do you mean the payment schedule that's in the contract or the payment just like a, 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 a separate schedule of like day like day one they show up are they due any money is that typical or is it more you know you get paid when things get done I think and on, does it vary by trade i'll try to interpret a little I th on some of the smaller subcontracts they might have we want 15 percent deposit as right. upon contract signing at rough inspection i want to be paid 40 percent, and then um at final inspection there's much more stuff like that okay yeah i mean we typically see schedule of values so yeah. billing by percentage complete that's the typical, depending on the relationship. I mean, it could be, for example, in a specialty sub that has a lot of upfront material costs. It could be a front yeah. loaded. But I mean, a careful contractor is not going to get let, let subs get too far ahead. I try extremely hard to avoid any such deposit. You know, oh, yeah. they'll, they'll give you every excuse. You know, my, my schedule is very full. If you want me to hold your spot in line, I need that 10%. I always say like, look, it's the day you show up with your guys, I will give you a check that day. And then, you know, two weeks later, we can have another check ready, but I'm not going to front a check three months in advance. On the flip side of that, we, that's kind of the front of the contract, but over the end of the contract, in terms of holdbacks. Mm -hmm. So- Retainage. Yeah. Yeah. What are, you, what are you seeing as the typical either percentages? Is there a certain percentage that's held back for like punch list or once you get your CO and, and things right. like that, what are you typically seeing that percentage as, <clears throat> as part of like the entire broad contract? Sure. I would say 5%. 5%. Yeah. I mean, again, I've been doing this for t since 95 and I would say the first 10 years I saw 10%. I mean, it was absolute industry standard, never, you know, deviated. And now in Massachusetts, it's been codified. Again, any project that the Prompt Payment Act applies to, mm -hmm. there's also the Massachusetts Retainage Act, oh. which sets the cap at 5%. So yeah. uh, again, good to know. Yeah. Which is good. It's just a way to make sure that you know your subcontractors aren't financing your project. Yeah, that really is, is what it, yeah. it boils down to. But you, know, it, you get a little bit, um, so for example, uh, on timing, there's some subs who come in the project and they're gone. In immediately, right? They come in and they do either the initial site work. Demolition. Demolition, yeah. right? Yeah. And so for those folks, it's like, why should they have to wait around for I agree. 18 months? Oh, yeah. It's a lot of black and white, and that's easy. I think the gray area is more along the lines of, <clears throat> say someone comes in and probably more specific to Dan and Mai's experience is just warranty claims, right? So say something 
fails within a month after somebody moves in or like kind of what's that period or yeah. maybe you're waiting for a sign the off concern i sort. see is when people hold money because it might happen i'll pay you but let me just put this through the paces for a little while it's like that's typically that's not how this works that's absolutely right yeah i mean there's a distinction at law between punchless work and warranty work and warranty work should not be on the contractor's dime okay even if it's incorrectly done because the way the contractor is paying for warranty work is labor they're not going to bill, but they shouldn't bill you additional amounts for the amount of labor they have to spend to do warranty work. That's included in the price that you should have already paid them. But when an owner is saying, hey, you got to come back and do warranty work and I'm going to hold back your contract balance, then it's almost like a double dip because mm -hmm. you're expecting the contractor to put in free work and you're withholding the money. And by the way, it's really hard to get somebody to come back to work no matter what the industry is, if they haven't been paid. It's hard enough even if they well, have Yeah, it's hard enough right. even if yeah. they have been paid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was kind point. of my point. Good point. <laughs> They've been paid and they're done. Yeah. That's a really good point. And I think, you know, again, it comes down to trust and if you're going to work with them again. And these folks do rely on referrals and repeat business. So it's in everybody's interest. So, I mean, obviously, yeah. this whole discussion is about when things just go completely off the rails and there's no way to solve it, basically. It's not like anybody is looking to just go right to court on every single project. No one would want to work with either party. That's right. Do you, do you guys remember a couple of years ago that internet meme came out and it was this dress and it was either, I think it was like blue and black or- Golden. Gold, yeah. yeah. Yeah, golden white. Okay. And like you would look at it and it would be say blue and black. Yeah. And then, you know, someone else would look at it and think, what are you talking about, right? <laughs> and those are the kind of issues, you'd be surprised how often that happens. Yeah. Where something happens on a project or in a relationship and, you know, the parties just see it totally differently. And that is a hard kind of, uh, of, of disease to cure, right? Yeah. I mean, when parties, and that's where I think the system is, is kind of, tilted against resolution because the parties are like balkanized, mm -hmm. right? They're in their corners. They see the world differently. They don't care what the cost is. And ultimately it's going to be up to an arbitrator or a jury or a judge to make the decision. The other thing that's pushing people towards each other is just the um, cost of starting the engine on the system. Mm -hmm. If you want to go through the court system, if you want to hire your lawyers, them hire theirs. It's, it's experts. Experts. I'm just gonna make up a number, but forty thousand dollars. If the if if a dispute is less than that, and you're really gonna go, I don't know. I I, I would think that you're gonna. You think I'm low? Oh, yeah. I mean, double that. On, honestly, it, it, right now, yeah. I think if you look at the value that people are placing in an hour's worth of time, whether mm -hmm. it's your attorney yeah. putting a high price on it, mm -hmm. or your consultant, or frankly, a developer. I mean, you know, it it that is. The great equalizer is everybody to a dispute is going to face those same costs, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people say, well, we're not going to factor that into the equation. Eventually it gets factored in. Yeah. Right. At some point you're just going to say, is this worth it? Absolutely. Right. You should say it. And the sooner you say it, honestly, <laughs> it, it, you know, hopefully you have a good team around you, right? That you have a lawyer who's not trying to goad you into a fight or you have an insurance guy or whoever it is mm. that's not trying to get you to make decisions that ultimately aren't worth it. You should have that as like your tagline. Like, is it worth it? Is it really it? worth it? I always tell people, this isn't law and order. You know, yeah. we live in the real world. Like yeah. I know you're in a dispute over 11 grand with your drywaller, but you guys better figure it out because there's no court system for, you yeah. know, what are you going to? 
Yeah. Right? What's interesting Small. too, I think not to kind of shine the spotlight on the legal profession, but you know, it is, and I don't think anybody's ever said there's anything interesting about the legal profession, but it really is that same equation. It's like, what's your relationship like with your clients? And you know, you can go find, unfortunately, a lawyer who will focus on that, right? Focus on like the one big ticket case that's going to make their bills a lot easier to pay. But just like you look for relationships with contractors who you trust, I think those professionals out there, accountants, insurance folks, lawyers, the good ones are also concerned about that relationship. And they want that that contract to come to them mm-hmm. for you know the $100,000 job mm-hmm. because they know next week, because you did a good job on that one, when the $50 million project comes around, you're also going to come to them, mm-hmm. right? For sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can we, any, can, any relationship. Can we, uh, if we have time, dive into like lien waivers and that sort of thing when you make a payment and mechanics liens and yeah. how often those might come up or you're just really, how to avoid them? You're really stepping up the like sexy. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say we should uh, close on a statute of limitation, statute of repose. <laughs> <laughs> Six years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to do any Which kind one? of like parental warning? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, no. So I put it at the end of the pod. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's funny, liens are, to be a construction lawyer, you need to know how the lien act works. Like I was saying before, that that it's not like, like when you go to a restaurant, you order your meal, it's different than if you go to a carry out or a cafeteria where you have to pay before you get to eat. Mm-hmm. With construction, it's that element of trust. So what the law did is it baked in some playing field, you know, to somehow help balance that imbalance. So the owner's holding the money, well, what if they don't pay? And so the lien... A mechanics lien is an equalizer. And so it enables a contractor or a subcontractor or a material supplier to actually encumber the real estate or a lease, a ground lease, or a, you know any kind of a tenancy lease to secure payment. It is not in and of itself a claim. It is a, an interest. It's, a, it's a, a security device to pay for the eventual judgment that would come out of a claim. So does it just cloud the title? It does. Yeah, exactly. And so that causes a lot of pinch points because you have maybe a construction loan that that's oh, yeah. going to constitute a act of default. There's statutory provisions. It is a, you know, if you miss them, the guillotine snaps shut and you're out of luck. And so the law has evolved over the years, but the one thing that's remained constant is the courts strictly construe that lien act. So what we, you know, typically do for owners is we have lien uh, lien waiver forms, partial lien waiver forms, final lien waiver forms uh, that are recordable instruments if need be and can clear title. What if someone puts a lien on your property, a mechanics lien on your property, and then they go out of business? There is a provision in the lien act that allows any party to go in on an expedited basis to challenge the legal sufficiency of a lien. Uh, You can get a hearing within seven days and go in and and we've had that happen. I think it also needs to be renewed over time. If you put a lien on someone's house and then go to sleep for two years, your lien is no longer Oh, yeah. There. Yeah. There, there's, so, a, there's a process. Oh, there's a time limit. Yes. I'm sorry. I, I, I just assumed you meant like a perfected lien. There are specific steps. And if you fail to follow those steps within the statutory framework, the lien will expire on oh, its okay. own. Yeah. Cool. All right. So last one here, statute of limitations, statute of repose. How long? What does it mean? Yeah. What is are it, they? Is it if there's a... Uh, a door that is, uh, you know, as you're closing it, it's hitting each other, or is it uh, something more serious than that? When when does this stuff come up? Sure, uh, Massachusetts statute of repose is six years. What that means is any claim arising from the design or construction 
of a project must be brought within six years, regardless of whether or not it's been discovered. Okay, so it's to give some predictability and some finality to parties to construction projects to know that after a certain date, there's no chance they're going to, you know, be on the hook for someone's injury or, or something like that. What, what do you mean by whether or not they've been discovered? How can you bring something if you don't discover it? Sure. There's, there's something called a latent defect. So, for example, there might be mold that's been growing inside a wall and you just had no reason to discover it. And then all of a sudden, you know, you open it up and it's three years after the statute of limitations may have expired, right? But it's still within that six years. I don't know if mold is the best answer because, or example, because there is an asbestos statute in Massachusetts, which actually is an exception. One of the few exceptions to the statute of repose. So uh, but, but that's, that's kind of the statute of repose. That does not come up that often. Statute of limitations are specific time periods within which a certain type of claim, category of claim has to be brought. So in Massachusetts, for example, statute of limitations for negligence would be three years from when the act occurred and when it was reasonably discoverable. So it's subject to what's called the discovery rule. When a party knew or should have known of the existence of, for example, that mold. That's different than, for example, the statute of limitations for contract, which is six years from the date of breach. All right. Contract claims are not subject to the statute of repose. So it's a different category of claim. And I know this is probably yeah. maybe not exactly what no, you No, but were. it comes up because we have investors, we have partners, and uh, you know, you take your profits out of a deal and four years later, something happens. So to me, it's like at six years and one day, you can you pay go. everybody back and feel pretty good. Oh yeah. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> I hope you're paying your investors before six years. Otherwise it's going to be expensive. <laughs> no, you are, but there's always that. Actually, I don't know how that, that, that goes in that yeah. situation, but. I think we're always on the hook. So I think the key here is just dot the I's, cross the T's, have your contracts checked and all that good stuff, right? That's it in a nutshell. The uh, ounce of preve prevention's worth the pound of cure. Is that the saying? Whatever it is. I do Build a tight know. ventilate, right? I guess so, right? <laughs> <laughs> just saying. But this has been an awesome episode, Brad. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank if, you. If uh, someone wants to get a hold of you or get in touch with you. Sure. Um, you can find me at uh, my email, bcroft at riw.com. Uh, we are at www.riw.com. And yeah, happy to hear from you guys uh, anytime. Cool. We'll put awesome. your uh, contact on the, on the episode description. And thanks everybody for listening, rating, reviewing, and for sharing the podcast. A happy daylight savings. And we'll catch you guys on the next one. Brad, thank you again. Thanks for having me. Cheers. All Take right. care. Bye.